Lights. Camera. Philosophy. It's the 2022 Dionysus Awards. For the most philosophical movies of the past year. And the nominees are... For Best Adapted Novel About Trauma, Marginalization, Self-Deception, and The Gap Between Appearance and Reality. So do us brothers, Romulus and Remus, and the wolf who raised us. Ilupo. For Best Rashomon-style epic about patriarchal domination with an existentialist hero. My fate and our child's fate will be written not by God's will, but by which old man will tire first. For best attempt to redeem 80 years of questionable ethics. There is nothing wrong with La Casa Madrigal. The magic is strong. And so are the drinks. What movies of the past year challenged your assumptions and made you think about things in new ways? The 2022 Dionysus Awards. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Jeremy Sable, sitting in for Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative, and I teach in Stanford's Structured Liberal Education Program. Jeremy is back for the third year in a row as special co-host for our ninth annual Dionysus Awards. The Dionysus Awards are presented each year to some of our favorite, most thought-provoking movies of the past year. You know, I didn't get to the actual cinema match last year, <laughs> but I did manage between variants to, to catch Dune on the big screen. Oh, me too. What a beautiful film. I also managed to see The French Dispatch and Drive My Car. Well, those are some great movies, which we don't have time for today. <laughs> yeah, but we do have some awesome films to talk about. Uh, we're going to be talking to Alex King from Simon Fraser University as well as your regular co-host, Ray Briggs, about some of the films that got them questioning their assumptions this year. And we'll talk to listeners like you, who've written in with their nominations for Dionysus winners. So Josh, one of this year's audience favorites was a kind of do-over for a 50-year-old film about the world's biggest pop group. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find the philosophy in The Beatles' Get Back. She files this report. Lennon was married happily. McCartney was going steady, and George Harrison was about to marry. Everything in the Beetle Garden was rosy. But that was a long time ago. If you want to explore some philosophical questions about reality, look no further than myths and folklore about the Beatles. Fans like to speculate, who are John, Paul, George, and Ringo? Not as abstract ideas, but as people. Drugs, divorce, and a slipping image. And if you were really yourself, you wouldn't be any of who we are now. I'm naturally then. Who are any of us? What is music? Peter Jackson's docu-series Get Back takes footage shot in 1969 and restores it into a colorful, joyful, mundane, loony, playful, long version of who the Beatles are. It culminates in the last Beatles concert. To watch like a bootleg of Let It Be, it is both somber and literally dark. TJ Shanoff is co-host of the Untitled Beatles podcast, and he says this is way different than the original documentary released in 1970. Because it was made in the middle of the breakup, 
there is literal recency bias from the 70s showing the band dissolving without the joy. Tony Mendoza, another co-host of the Untitled Beatles podcast. 50 years later, you can look back at all that stuff and reassess. What did they leave out? Oh, all that fun they were having. You are us wearing green coats, standing so in the sun, the moon. And it's like, not even a slice of life, because you get a lot more than a slice at a time. Hannah Kim teaches philosophy at McAllister College. She says the vibrant colors make the Beatles feel up close. They're wearing neon green and bright orange and deep purple and pink and red and their fur jackets. It was just fun to see that. The film plays around with time. The second installment begins with this line that says the future of not only the project, but the group itself is now in doubt. And then number two. Who's now? Like now in 1969, they're now? Because we're not talking about our now. But it's going to be such an incredible sort of comical thing, like in 50 years time, you know. They broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. In this version, Yoko Ono is no longer cast as the destroyer of worlds. Instead, she hangs around quietly, mostly. I know it sounds like Benny Goodman, but don't worry, it's the big sound of 1969. While we're watching these eight hours of film footage, the Beatles, the four of them, are seldom in a room by themselves. Holly Tesler leads a master's degree program at the University of Liverpool titled The Beatles Music Industry and Heritage. They are constantly surrounded by people coming and going and, you know, somebody bringing in tea or the post or people dropping in randomly. So I wonder if they get anything done. And within the mundane everyday activities, there's the music. What also really struck me as well is how quickly they, even when they're just fooling around, they just, you know, go back and forth into any sort of song and riff, stuff they used to play in Hamburg in the early days. And you can see they have a great affection for it. As Tesler notes, Ringo is there dutifully with his drums, ready to get on with it. John has many moods. George comes and goes, there but not there. Very talented, but very sullen. I don't care if you don't want it. I don't care. <laughs> it's going to be musical. It all reaches a peak with the rooftop performance. Paul McCartney is looking over his shoulder and delighted by the fact they're getting shut down by the cops. It's a little more performative than we might expect, but just to see it unfold the way it did, um, especially in the cold and the misery of it all, that it is sort of that just last shining moment in their career before it all starts to fall apart. Get back. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> Thanks for that report, Holly. Now let's get back to two of us. <laughs> I'm Josh Landy, along with my Stanford colleague, Jeremy Sable, and we're thinking about the most philosophical movies of the past year for our annual Dionysus Awards. Our first category is 
Best Film About Complicated Mothers Telling Uncomfortable Truths. And our two nominees are The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Parallel Mothers, directed by Pedro Almodovar. So maybe we should start with a disclaimer. Neither Jeremy nor I are mothers, or even parents. We do have mothers, and great ones, I might add. But I feel like in every other way, we are completely ignorant <laughs> when it comes to what it means to be a quote-unquote good mother, which is a question both of our films are raising. So we'll just be talking about what our movies have to say about that. Starting with The Lost Daughter. That one's based on a novel by Elena Ferrante, and it's about a rather mysterious character called Lita who has a very complicated relationship to her daughters. I'm on holiday. I'm looking out over the most... Okay. I love you too. Bye. Walter Benjamin has this lovely line about the difference between a riddle and a mystery, and a riddle is something, a question you can solve, and a mystery is something you can't. So you look at the character Lita as you see her today. I mean, a lot of the movies set in the past, but the, the Lita we see today, on the one hand, goes out of her way to go and find a young girl who's lost and restore her to a mother, which is clearly a you know an act of great uh, kindness. But we also see her stealing this child's doll and hanging on to it, even though the child's really upset. And uh, so how on earth are you supposed to put those two things together? So Lita as a character is quite mysterious in terms of her motivations. Why, why does she take this doll? Why does she keep the doll? And why does she kind of flaunt the fact that she's stolen it? She keeps <laughs> yeah. bringing it with her, play, leaving it out, right? And then uh, on the other hand, the, the other family, right, the, the family of this lost daughter, um, the family from whom she's stolen the doll, um, Nina, the young mother, uh, is also fairly mysterious in that the kind of quest for this doll becomes kind of mafia-like and, and, you know, it's equally bizarre. Whoever took her should get brain cancer. Oh, come on. It's kid stuff, you understand? They like a toy, they take it. That's it. No, Aruna's children aren't like kids. Yeah, it's their mom. She's a Well, I spoke to Tony, and the kids didn't take anything. He's lying. Don't say that. Well, it's true. Don't say it. I love that the central character of the film is such an impenetrable mystery. And as you say, even you could think about the two main characters, both mothers, both with a complicated relationship to their nuclear family. We know it from the, yeah, spoiler alert, but we know from Lita's past that she uh, left her husband uh, to pursue what started as an affair, becomes a full-blown relationship. Nina seems to be on the verge of doing something very similar. There's something about the complexity of these characters that keeps, at least for me, it kept gnawing away at me. For me, there's there's kind of two great mysteries. One is, you know, how do these two women balance, it seems like a true commitment and love for their children um, with their own emotional life, which isn't stable, which is not, you know, locked on to the nuclear family and its needs. They, they're individuals with desires and they want to pursue those things as well. So that's one complexity of the story. The other one I find fascinating is I, it seems like the young Lita and her choices to pursue this affair with this professor, uh, leave her children. Um, somehow that's the cause, or it's related, right? The film makes us think that it produces this very strange action later on in her life where she steals this doll and kind of yeah. keeps it around her. They seem unrelated. We, it, uh, relationship is not obvious, and yet the film makes us think, ah, the one is because of the other. And that conflict you're talking about between sort of personal satisfactions and the satisfactions of being a parent... 
I think that's really striking in the film. It's kind of refreshing to see a film in which children are not an unequivocal blessing. Children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. Josh, I think that's a perfect segue to start talking about uh, Parallel Mothers. So it's about two women who meet in the maternity ward while about to give birth. So there's Janice, who's somewhere in her late 30s, and there's Anna, who's around 17-something when the film starts. And we're going to have to give away a couple of plot points here to show how brilliantly complicated this movie is. So the two babies get swapped in the hospital, and Janice eventually finds out, uh, but she's already bonded with her baby, so she doesn't say anything. But the baby doesn't really look like her. Um, the father of the baby immediately recognizes, doesn't recognize himself and the baby. So early in the film, before we realize that the swap has happened, there's this kind of confusion around, is it her baby or not? Creo que la niña no es mía. ¿Qué? No la reconocí. ¿Cómo que no la reconociste? Es lo que sentí. Arturo, lo que estás diciendo es muy poco científico. No creo que sea mi hija, Janice. But then Anna's baby dies. So does Janice need to tell Anna that her baby is still alive? Right, and, and what does it mean to say it's her baby? I mean, shortly after Janice discovers the baby she's been taking care of isn't her biological baby, her intuition is, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Anna doesn't know. She's got a baby. She's happy. I'm happy. We're both bonded with our baby. Maybe it would sort of, I don't know, it unsettle everybody to tell Anna the truth about the biological origin of these two babies. Why does it matter that there isn't this blood bond? But then, in the later part of the movie, our intuitions are totally flipped, right? Why? Well, because Anna's baby dies, and now it feels like it's Janice's responsibility to say, actually, your baby didn't really die. Your my, baby. My baby died. My yeah, baby yeah. died. Yep. And so she's sort of going overboard in a sense, right? She's doing a kind of moral wrong to Anna in the process. Totally. And that moral wrong uh, is so clear in the second half. But in the first half, you know, you think this is a kind of a nature culture kind of a movie where there's an objective truth. Who is the real mother? Right. Cheek swab DNA. <laughs> uh, but then you also have this more subjective truth, right, that you become a mother by being a mother. Right. And and Janice is the mother of this child that she has gotten attached to. Ana Manso Ferreira sería la madre biológica de Cecilia Martínez Moreno. Pero Ana Manso soy yo. Here's a kind of wacky and interesting thing about this film. It starts and ends with a totally different subject. So the bulk of the movie is, of course, about these two mothers, but the start and end is about the mass killings of civilians by the Franco regime and uh, kind of a contemporary effort to exhume uh, the bodies of those murdered people and say the truth about what happened. I feel like the issue of truth seems maybe to hold them together because Janice ends up telling Anna the truth about the babies. Yeah. And Arturo, who's the father of uh, Janice's baby, tells his wife about the affair that he had with Janice. And Anna tells Janice the true story of how her baby came into being. And of course, at the end, uh, you know, Arturo, who also happens to be a filmmaker, reveals the truth about the Franco regime's killings. 
I like how as the movie is progressing, particularly when we're following the story of Janice and Anna, um, the truth telling moments are ambivalent. They have these kind of bad outcomes. They, they, they're very disturbing to hear these truths. It unsettles both of the women at different points. So coughing up or revealing the truth seems kind of problematic and complicated. It doesn't always have good outcomes. But of course, in the story of Spain and its past, right, the truth telling might also be uncomfortable and awkward, but it's obviously morally necessary. So, Jeremy, it's time to make a decision. Uh, we've got Parallel Mothers and The Lost Daughter, both about motherhood and truth-telling. Which one is going to come away with our award today? You know, I think the two stories of the two mothers and then this larger national story of Spain in Parallel Mothers is so dramatic and so compelling and so original. I think that gets my vote. Mine too. And so, the 2022 Dionysus Award for Best Film About Complicated Mothers Telling Uncomfortable Truths goes to... Parallel Mothers, directed by Pedro Almodovar. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.